You are now tuned in to episode number 61 of the Page Turners Podcast. Let's go. to the Page Turners Podcast with your host, Elgin Bailey. Um, this is episode number 61. 61. We are currently reading The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. Each episode is a different reading, commentary, criticism, aha moments from the essays within that particular book this particular episode is going to be dropping uh, an excerpt from one of my favorite books uh, that I've read here lately Um, the excerpt is from Robert L. Allen's classic Black Awakening in Capitalist America. Readers will note that it assumes knowledge of the events from the Black Power era. Also, most of his sources are not cited. Nevertheless, nearly four decades later, Allen's analysis of the four foundations' impact on Black Power movement is prophetic and sufficiently clear to audiences today so clear that we are including this excerpt as it appeared in 1969 departures from their original are indicated in the brackets that's for the folks who will be reading along I'm excited I am thrilled I cannot begin to tell you how excited I am about this so I'm not even going to tell you any more about my excitement I'm going to dig in Robert L. Allen from Black Awakening in Capitalist America and I read the year 1967 wrote James Foreman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee SNCC, SNCC, marked a historical milestone in the struggle for liberation of black people in the United States and the year that revolutionaries throughout the world began to understand more fully the impact of the black power movement. Our liberation will only come when there is final destruction of this mad octopus, the capitalist system in the United States with all of its life-sucking tentacles of exploitation and racism that choke the people of Africa, Asian, and Latin America. There can be little doubt that Foreman was right in pointing to 1967 as an important turning point in the history of black America. 
It was a year of unprecedented, massive, and widespread urban revolts. It was the year that so-called riots became an institutionalized form of black protests. Attempts to build black united fronts were taking place around the country. There was the Black United Front of Washington, D.C., the North City Congress in Philadelphia, the United Front in Boston, the Black United Conference in Denver, the Black Congress in Los Angeles. There were coalitions which sought to alter power relations in the cities where they existed and to establish some measure of black control or influence in those cities. They also faced the same dangers of manipulation and co-optation. They had to come to grips with the threat of gradual takeover by more conservative blacks who have little desire to serve the community. Shout out to the late, great Glenn Ford for coming up with this particular phrase to describe these conservative blacks, and that would be the black misleadership class. And I read, The simple but unfortunate fact is that the militants are usually less well-organized than the Urban League, the NAACP, the Southern Christian Leadership Council, preachers, teachers, and social workers who are invited to participate in the struggle for black liberation. Consequently, it is relatively easy for these representatives of the privileged black bourgeoisie to take control of organizations ostensibly dedicated to militant reform to enabling black people to assume control over their own lives. If this process of takeover goes unchecked, the United Front is transformed into an instrumentality serving the interests of the black middle class alone. The needs of the popular black masses go by the board, and a new oppressive elite assumes power. It is only to the extent that the United Front serve the needs and aspirations of the great bulk of black people that they can be regarded as progressive organizations. To the extent that they fall in the hands of privileged, opportunistic elite, they become simply an added burden strapped to the back of black America. <laughs> My man, Robert L. Allen, dropping bars. And I continue to read. The ouster of Harlem Congressman Adam Clayton Powell from the House of Representatives prompted the Congress for Racial Equality Corps to consecratize its interest in electoral politics. On January 16, 1967, the organization's national director, Floyd McKissick, issued a call for a conference to create a national black political structure. No black machinery now exists, he said, is available to us through which our just hopes and aspirations can be achieved. Excuse me. He told reporters that the proposed structure would be an apparatus, not a political party. The apparatus would assist CORE in deciding whether to support the Democratic or Republican parties or develop an independent platform which will attempt to sell to the Democrats or Republicans. McKissick added that black people were moving toward block voting throughout the United States. 
He said that both national political parties had failed blacks. He sought to elevate the black man to a state of equality in the decision-making process of the government. He expressed the hope that the proposed political structure would become a formidable block by the time of the 1968 national elections. Thus, Core was in the contradictory position of espousing greater black involvement in electoral politics, even though it was precisely in this sphere with the humiliating ouster of Powell that black people had just suffered a significant political defeat. But the temptations of electoral politics were too great to be denied. The proposed conference never took place, but CORE and its, ta- its taxed allies, the Black Power Conference, moved progressively closer to becoming little more than political lobbies advocating reforms, taking whatever political crumbs they could garner for themselves. CORE was to take other curious turns, and eventually ally itself with an arm of a very powerful structure which it claimed to be fighting. Pay attention, folks. Here it comes. Early in 1967, the Ford Foundation made grants of several hundred thousand dollars to the NAACP and the Urban League. A few months later, the foundation gave one million to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund's new National Office for the Rights of Indigenous. But for the purpose of urban pacification, These groups were less than satisfactory, since there was serious doubt as to how much control they exercised over the young militants and frustrated ghetto blacks who were likely to be heaving Molotov cocktails during the summer. If his efforts to keep the lids on the cities were to succeed, the foundation had to find a way to penetrate militant organizations which were believed to weld some influence over the angry young blacks who were trapped in urban chaos. So, big L commentary. What you see here, right, is the Ford Foundation looking to give up crumbs to black organizations in order for them to ultimately squell, squelch, tamp down, stamp out, destroy the militancy of the frustrated black folks, right? They use this as a tool, and we see this tool being used and armed still today. Nonprofits across the globe are tools to tamp out, stamp out, destroy militancy, radicalness of those who are suffering. And I read, the first move in this direction occurred in May 1967 when the foundation granted $500,000 to the Metropolitan Applied Research Center, Mark for short, a newly created organization in New York with a militant-sounding program headed by Kenneth B. Clark, a psychology professor who at one time was associated with Harlem's anti-poverty program. When it was organized the previous March, Mark announced that its purpose was to pioneer in research and action on behalf of the powerless urban poor in northern metropolitan areas. Clark's strategy 
was to get the large corporation involved in the ghetto. Business and industry are our last hope, he once remarked. They are the most realistic elements of our society. Interesting. In a brochure, Mark compared himself with the semi-governmental RAND company, Corporation, which does research for Air Force. The difference between the two, according to the brochure, is that Mark is not associated with the government, nor is it limited to research. It is also an action organization. Listen to this. One of Mark's first actions was to name Roy Ennis, the chairman of Corps' militant Harlem chapter, as his first civil rights fellow in residence. Got him. The May 11th announcement also stated that the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and Reverend Andrew Young, one of King's chief aides, had agreed to take part in the fellowship program also. Got him. Ennis received a six-month fellowship. The Civil Rights Fellowship, wrote the New York Times on March 12th, are designed to give leaders an opportunity to evaluate their programs and tactics and undertake long-term planning. Mark's staff was to aid the leaders in their studies, and the fellows were to draw salaries equal to those who received from their organizations or from private employment. Clark said he had also discussed fellowships with Floyd McKissick, National Director of Corps, Stokely Carmichael, then the chairman of SNCC, Whitney Young of the Urban League, and Roy Wilkins of the NAACP. Mark's next move was to call a secret meeting at the home of Dr. Clark of civil rights leaders from May 27. Subsequently, another such meeting was held June 13 in New York Hotel among the leaders, Clark, and nine major civil rights groups. At the conclusion of that meeting, Clark announced a joint effort to calm Cleveland's racial tension. He said that the underlying causes of unrest and despair among urban Negroes, as well as clear indications of their grim, sobering, causing consequences, are found classic in Cleveland. What Clark did not mention was that the Ford Foundation had been trying to calm Cleveland since 1961 by financing various local research and action projects. But despite this joint effort, Cleveland blew up in 1967, and the further serious rumblings were heard in the early spring of 1967. Clearly, a new approach was needed in Cleveland, and the stage was set for the Ford Foundation's first direct grant to a militant group, the Cleveland Chapter of Corps. The foundation announced on July 14th that it was giving $175,000 to the Special Purposes Fund of Corps to be used for training of Cleveland youth and adult community workers, voter registration efforts, exploration and economic development programs, and attempts to improve program planning among civil rights groups. Damn. In explaining the grant, Ford Foundation President McGeorge Bundy said that the foundation staff and consultants had been investigating Cleveland for months. In fact, he said, it was pre predictions of new violence in the city that led to our first staff visits in March. 
apparently realizing that the grant might give the impression of a close relationship developing between the foundation and Corps, Bundy added, the national officers of Corps have dealt with us on this matter in a businesslike way, and neither Mr. Floyd McKissick nor I supposes that this grant requires the two of us or our organizations to agree on all public questions. It does require us both to work together in support of peaceful and constructive efforts, of course, Cleveland leadership, that it is what we plan to do. So in that point right there, family, Floyd McKissick felt as if I can take this money for them as long as we maintain the ability to make our own decisions, control our own autonomy, all those things. And that's just not what takes place. It's not what happens. And I read, second, Corps militant rhetoric, but ambiguous and reformist definition of black power as simply black control of black communities appealed to the foundation's officers who were seeking just those qualities in a black organization, which hopefully could tame the ghettos. From the foundation's point of view, old-style moderate leaders no longer exercised any real control, while genuine black radicals were too dangerous. So as long as the people didn't have, you know, they, they kept down the, the, the militancy, right? They looked for an organization specifically that didn't have the radical politics, the militant politics. They looked for someone who was integrationist and reformist. Damn. And I read, Core fit the bill because its talks about black revolution was believed to appeal to discontented blacks, while its program of achieving black power through massive injections of governmental business and foundation aid seemingly opened the way for continued corporate domination of black communities by means of what? A new black elite. And I read, surprisingly, to some Corps programs, as elaborated by Floyd McKissick in 1967, was quite similar to Marx's approach. Both organizations see themselves as intermediaries whose role was to negotiate with the power structure on behalf of blacks and the poor generally. Both suggested that more government and private aid was necessary, and both sought to gain admission for poor blacks and whites into present economic and political structure of U.S. society. <coughs> Excuse me. McKissick, who became the second core official to accept a marked fellowship, criticized capitalism, but only because black people were not allowed to participate in it. Within a few months, the Ford Foundation could apparently view its grant to Cleveland Corps as a qualified success. There was no rebellion in Cleveland in the summer of 1967, and in November, Carl Stokes became the first Negro mayor of a major American city, a fact which temporarily eased tensions in the ghetto. We are not satisfied with the speed at which the program has moved, said James Cunningham, a consultant retained by the foundation to monitor the project 
but it has shown real potential. I see it as a flowering of what black power could be. Man. And I read, the first phase of the project was an intensive voter registration drive in three slum wards in August. This was followed by a voter education program to instruct black people on voting procedures and to get them to the polls. This was a program that included mailings and meetings with candidates. The net result was this phase of the program was to aid in the election of Carl Stotes, a fact of which Cleveland Corps boasted in his report on the project. Another part of the program, here it is, designated as Youth Leadership Training Program, began in November. In all, some 62 youths, ranging in age from 17 to 21, were involved in the project. The project was designed, according to CORE report, to identify and train urban ghetto youth in those skills which can serve as an alternative to frustration and violence. To this end, the youngsters attended classes on black history, African history, and social sciences. They were taught skills in canvassing, interviewing, recording community opinions. There was apparently little discussion who would ever read their interviews and reports of community sentiment. Some of the project staff were taking on visits to black-owned businesses in Chicago. In short, youths who had no faith in the system were taught if only they could re-socialize themselves, they might fall in after all. Treacherous. The director of the youth training program, Philip Carter, said his project hoped to show that the legitimate hostilities and aggressions of black youth could be programmed into socially acceptable channels. He expressed the hope that the youths being trained would become young black urban renewal specialists, young black sociologists, and young black political scientists. He did not say, and did not need to say, in whose interests those young black experts would be put to work. The mere fact that there aren't any genuinely black controlled educational institutions guaranteed that they are, if they are to work, they must work in the interests of continued white denomination of every facet of black life. Militant rhetoric was used to cover up the co-optive nature of this project. Our job as an organization, said Arthur Evans, a member of the Cleveland Corps and National First Vice President of the organization, is to prepare people to make a decision on revolution or not. The choice is whether to take land and resources and redistribute them. The evidence of the Cleveland Project suggests that Corps decided against revolution. The militant rhetoric deceived no one, least of all those who financed the project. In his annual report for 1967, McGeorge Bundy dismissed Preachers of Hate as so much spume, spume on the wave of the past, but he concluded that no one who was dealt honestly with legitimately militant black leaders will confuse their properly angered words with any conspiracy to commit general violence. So much for Mr. Evans' cagey talk about revolution. Unfortunately for Bundy, legitimately militant black leaders do not necessarily speak for or represent anyone but themselves. The violence would hit Cleveland the next year should have amply 
demonstrated this fact. Developments at CORE Convention in Oakland, California early in the month of July 1967 provided further insight into the organization's strategy. One of the most important events at the meeting was the presentation of an impressive 12-page report by Roy Ennis, Harlem chapter. The report gave a summary of Harlem's core program for gaining of control or the creation of institutions in our community. We call this report said a program of separate but not segregated institutions. In the area of economics, the report announced that Enos, as chapter's chairman, had joined with a group of young black men in Harlem in organizing a small business investment cooperation corporation, rather, I'm sorry, that will have a broad-based stockholding membership. The organization was to be known as the Harlem Commonwealth Council, and Enos became a member of its board of directors. Referring to HCC, the report continued, money will be raised in the black community that will be matched two to one by small business loans, and this money will be used to invest in or to create businesses in Harlem or possibly light industry. Jeez. Thus, Harlem Core was pioneering in formulating a strategy for the rise of black capitalism. In the field of education, Harlem Corps reported that in March it has launched its demand for black-controlled schools in Harlem by proposing the creation of an independent board of education for Harlem selected and completely controlled by and responsible to the black people of Harlem. According to the proposal, integration had failed, and the only way to achieve quality education for Harlem's youngsters was to, through community control of the schools, Harlem Corps set up a committee for autonomous Harlem School District and began organizing support for the proposal. Interestingly, the following November, McGeorge Bundy recommended that New York City's school system be decentralized into 30 to 60 semi-autonomous local districts. Bundy had been named head of a special committee on decentralization at the end of the April after the state legislator directed Mayor Lindsay to submit a decentralization plan by December 1st. If the city were to qualify for more state aid, Lindsay, an astute political liberal, insisted that decentralization was not merely an administrative or budgetary device but a means to advance the quality of education for all children and a method of ensuring community participation in achieving that goal. Wow. Bundy's proposal would allow for not one, but possibly several school boards for Harlem. Harlem's core school board committee therefore found itself in the position of being on the same side as the New York Times and giving critical support to Bundy's plan, while both the New York City Board of Education and the United Federation of Teachers opposed it. Bundy and the Times saw that decentralization would be modified and applied in a manner that would not seriously change the overall functioning of the education system. While the UFT was so blindly engrossed in intermediate problems that it failed to realize that its long-term interest lay neither with the school board nor in the proposed plan by Bundy. Oh, this is where it gets good. Teachers began, excuse me, 
Teachers be, tensions between teachers and black parents have risen as a result of three-week teacher strike that fall. The teachers thought parents were attempting to usurp the professional rights and responsibilities. The parents, on the other hand, attacked the teachers as racists and destroyers of their children. Bundy was well aware of this escalating tension while writing his report, Reconnection for Learning. But he also knew that the teachers had in their union an established mechanism for channeling their disconnect. The parents had no such channel. And there was always the danger that in their anger, having no institutionalized outlet, violence might escalate. Hence, it was urgent necessity for the parents in some way to be reconnected to the schools and if disruptive conflict were to be avoided. The mechanisms for accomplishing this end appear to be limited school decentralization, which would allow some parent participation, therefore migrating dangerous clashes while at the same time precluding genuine community control of the schools by massing control under a new facade. Wow. CORE's Oakland meeting was shaken briefly by a rebellion of dissident nationalists who thought, who thought that the strategy of separate community dissertation was too limited in scope. The nationalists wanted CORE to endorse complete separations of blacks from white America. They sought to have the organization approve the idea of separate black state. They also wanted CORE to exclude white members. On this latter point, a compromise was reached and the convention agreed to strike the word multiracial from the section of the organization's constitution that describes its membership. White liberals loudly decried this compromise. The New York Times, an example, lamented editorially that white coal strugglers have been given a clear message that they will be relegated to second-class citizenship within the organization. To put it bluntly, core membership now stands for racial inequality. Core, however, was no longer attuned to this traditional white liberal view of the meaning of racial equality. In the second half of the 60s, having a quota of white members was no longer required to legitimize a black freedom organization, and neither was white membership necessary to ensure that black organizations conformed to the desires of white society. Indirect control and manipulation of black liberation movements was the hallmark of new liberalism. It still is. Which even went so far as to endorse black power and black separatism, not to mention black capitalism as a means of sidetracking black revolution. The programmatic thrust of the core convention was outlined a few weeks later by McKissick. The occasions of his remark, McKissick denounced the statements condemning riots issued by Martin Luther King Jr., A. Philip Randolph, Roy Wilkins, and Whitney Young. Their statement approved violent repression of riots and said in part, killing, arson, and looting are criminal acts and should be dealt with as such. Equally guilty are those who incite provoking calls specifically for such reactions. There is no justice which justifies a present destruction by rioters or retaliating troopers, question, of the Negro community. 
McKissick replied that history will record the ghetto explosions that summer as the beginning of the Black Revolution and as rebellions against repression and exploitation. In a tactfully worded statement, McKissick accused the four civil rights leaders of opportunism. We believe that it is unfortunate that our brothers felt it necessary to condemn black men for rebelling against that which oppresses, that they found it opportune to decry the violence of the victim. It is fruitless to condemn without offering solutions. It can only force black people to question those who condemn. We wouldn't have violence if someone wouldn't have made mistakes, said the court leader. He then went on to outline CORE's program for correcting these mistakes. Some of his specific proposals sounded remarkably like what Harlan CORE had recommended. Black people should seek to control the educational system, the political economic system, and administration of their own communities. Ownership of the land area in places such as Harlem must be transferred to the residents of Harlem. Ownership of businesses and ghettos must be transferred to black people either individually or collectively. These paragraphs suggest certain economic changes, but they leave unanswered the critical question of in whose interest is economic power to be exercised. Simple transference of business ownership into black hands, either individually or collectively, is in itself no guarantee that this will benefit the total community. Blacks are capable of exploiting one another just as easily as whites. It was this ambiguity, however, that opened the way for CORE to move toward black capitalism. What had begun as Harlem CORE project was now shaping up as an overall strategy of national CORE. Black power was slowly but relentlessly coming to be equated with the power of black business. That's the dangers of black capitalism. This despite the fact that black businesses have never been a power social entity. Most ghetto businesses tend to be marginal operations such as beauty salons, barbershops, small grocery stores, and other retail and service businesses. In 1967, one quarter of all businesses in Harlem, for example, were black-owned. But in all of New York City, only a dozen or so black-owned or managed enterprises employed more than 10 people. The history of black businesses in the United States fails to disclose any significant venture in steel, automobiles, telephone, railroads, and most other industrial fields. The white corporate Oligopy has excluded blacks from mainstream of American corporate endeavor, except in certain areas of banking, insurance, and publishing. But in at least two of these areas, the black businesses is largely fighting a rear guard action. In 1948, the National Negro Insurance Association could claim to have 62 member companies with assets of over 108 million. As of 1963, the Negro Handbook listed 89 black insurance firms with total assets of only $26 million. The top 10 white firms alone claimed assets of over $100 billion in 1967. As for banks, in February 1969, Dempsey J. Travis, president of the Association of Negro Mortgage Bankers, 
told a conference that the number of black-owned commercial banks, for instance, had declined to 20 in 19 cities from 49 in 39 cities. There is very little that would suggest any reversal of these other overall trends. Moreover, in cities where significant black business class exists, it usually is a conservative force rather than a militant one advocating for the massive restructuring of the U.S. economic system. Facts. The proposed core program tried to reverse the general downward trend and create new expanded black businesses by demanding that existing white control economic enterprises be transferred to black ownership. However, such a transfer could alter economic realities in the ghetto only if ownership and control of the business activities became collective and community-wide. Individual ownership or limited stock corporations restrict the effect of control and resulting benefits to a narrowly circumscribed class of persons within the black community. If the community as a whole is the benefit, then the community as a whole must be organized to manage collectively its internal economy and its business relationships with white America. Black businesses form, excuse me, let me read this important piece one more time. Black business firms must be treated and operated as social property, belonging to the general black community, not as the private property of individuals or limited groups of individuals. This necessity, the dismantling of capitalist property relations in black community, and their replacement with planned communal economy, core had no intentions of tampering with the free enterprise system. McKissick, chose to ignore the ramifications of these considerations in his anxiety to project CORE as the most prominent and serious organization in the militant black movement. CORE, he concluded, stands ready to serve as coordinating agent to assist all black people of any philosophy. Suddenly, addressing himself to those with money to spend and who want to put out the flames of the city, he contended that if core programs were adequately funded and fully implemented, then it just might be possible to alter the future of America from its present self-destructive course. Damn. In summary, core and the cultural nationalists drape themselves in the mantle of nationalism, but upon examination, it is seen that their programs far from aiding in the achievement of black liberation and the freedom from exploitation, would instead weld the black communities more firmly in the structure of American corporate capitalism. The reformists, or bourgeoisie nationalism, through its chosen vehicle of black capitalism, may line the pockets and boost the social status of the black middle class and black intelligentsia, but it will not ease the oppression of the ordinary ghetto dweller. I'm going to read that one more time because I think that's very, very important. The reformists, or bourgeoisie nationalism, through its chosen vehicle of black capitalism, may line the pockets and boost the social status of the black middle class and black intelligentsia, but it will not ease the oppression of the ordinary ghetto dweller. What core and cultural nationalists seek to not seek not to end an oppression, but the transfer of oppressive apparatus into their own hands. They call themselves nationalists and exploit the legitimate nationalist feelings of black people 
in order to advance their own interests as a class. And chief among those interests is their desire to become brokers between white rulers and the black ruled. Ooh, boy. Ladies and gentlemen, that was an excerpt from Black Awakening Capitalist America, one of the essays chosen for this anthology of The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Highlights how nonprofits have been used for generations as a way of squelling and putting out the radical militant fire of so many of our people. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Pace Turns Podcast. I appreciate you guys. Please like, subscribe, subscribe, comment, share, all those things. Um, Please, and thank you. Until next time, remember to study and fight.